You're my friend. We're pals. Z-Gross. Fabiana Moneta. Death by Snoo Snoo. Aerobicizing death machine. Quats. They certainly would not bring me back. And, and, and. Quats. The Buster. The Titans of Religion Showdown. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Random thought over. Which makes me want to go down to Quarks and play some Dabo. Broadcasting live from inside the power band, this is The Blob. In this episode, everybody dies. I'm your host, Kevin, along with my super cool friends, Ben. Hey. And Chad. What's up? Enthusiastic intro as always, guys. Folks, welcome to the podcast. This week we're going to be talking about part two of our book club series, the sci-fi masterpiece Fall of Hyperion by Dan Simmons. <laughs> Long lost brother of Richard Simmons. <laughs> <laughs> and Gene Simmons, of course. Yeah. If Gene and Richard had a love child, it, it would, would be, be the Shrike. Dan Simmons. <laughs> it would be the Shrike, exactly. Shrike. <laughs> a, campy, a campy Shrike doing a step aerobics class. I would watch that. Of course you would. He would have a voice like that. It'd just be like a high-pitched screaming robot voice. <laughs> yeah. Or you, or you could have like a, a low, very whitish. Hey, guys. I'm here for step class. Is this where the step class is? <laughs> no. I got four arms and a lot of sharp finger blades. I don't know if that's going to get in the way of anybody, but maybe I should I go in the back? Would that be a good spot for me to stand? I'm getting a bit of a paunch. <laughs> I'm getting a bit of a punch from traveling through time and killing everybody, so I wanted to come to this step class and maybe work a little bit of it off. Now, I've got a lot of sharp knives on me, obviously. Should I stand in the back corner of the class, or I don't want anybody to get hurt? <laughs> ah, what am I kidding? I want everybody to get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> what am I kidding? I, I kill everybody. <laughs> what, what am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> can, can somebody stuff stuff like a power bar down my 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 gaping moss before we start? Or I'm, I'm feeling a little feeling a little peckish. <laughs> All right, <laughs> folks, welcome to the podcast. This week we're talking about the science fiction masterpiece, "The Fall of Hyperion," the sequel to "Hyperion" by Dan Simmons, brother of Richard Simmons. Uh, by Dan Simmons, brother of Richard and Richard Simmons and Gene Simmons. <laughs> and this would be part two of our book club series. We hope that you read the book or listen to the audiobook, which we will also be commenting on. Let's get to it. What are what are your guys' high level thoughts on this? I don't recall my high level thoughts on Hyperion One other than probably and it might be worth saying, like in the beginning, that one of the reasons why I'm really excited about talking about this series is we talk about a variety of movies and TV shows and they have a variety of ratings and we feel all kinds of different, you know, feelings. But I feel like the books that we cover are t are going to generally be like really just fantastic pieces, fantastic works. And this is no exception. So I think as we mentioned at the end of the Hyperion episode, like this series is just fantastic and the first book is just kind of like setting things up for kind of the story to get rolling. And this is the one where it kind of gets going. So it's, it's, it's cool to finally get a chance to talk about it. Absolutely. And for, for me, I'm just so sick of uh time travel, the uh, multiverse shit that I feel like this threads the needle well. And I enjoyed it for the fifth or sixth time I've read it. 
Yeah, I would agree. The first thing that comes to mind for high level for me is the fact that this novel has a sort of uh, a narrator in Joseph Severn. So it's a different kind of a story and is, I think, threaded together a little more nicely than the first Hyperion book is. Mm, yeah, definitely. I really like the Severn as narrator and using the dream sequences to tie things together. I think, like you said, it's a very, it's a much more effective way to do it. And it's, I want to say it's clever. Like I'm sure there's millions of classics and millions of pieces of classical literature that I've never read that do, that do it. But I it definitely made for an enjoyable story, no doubt. Mm. You're saying you mean the tying in of the classical literature? No, I'm just saying that like Severn as the narrator who has his story and is being used as an intelligence gathering device for the Man and Gladstone part of the story. And his dream sequences is where that intelligence of what's going on is coming from as the third part of the story. It's a very clever way to weave it together. And I hadn't encountered it before, although there's probably classical literature that did things in that way that I just haven't encountered, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And I think that the, you know, talking about Severn period as a segment in this episode is probably a good idea. Because of what you just said, Chad, there's a lot of really interesting things going on with him and, and the role he plays in the book, like the multiple roles rather that he plays in the book are very cool. We should spend some time on that. Yeah. High level for me on this, we talked about these books as a series and how we sort of stumbled into them in the last episode, the Hyperion episode rather. This is such an excellent story. And the writing is so good. I, I said it before, it's just so descriptive. I love the way Dan Simmons writes. And, you know, certainly he's got a lot of creative talent coming from a family that includes Richard Simmons and Gene Simmons. So, yeah, got to keep you up. Know, yeah, exactly. And I think that I like the structure of the story, the way it's laid out. Again, I love the role that Severn plays. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. And I think how cool and interesting it is. And of course, the, you know, the pieces of the puzzle, the events in the story, how they all unfold and then how they all come together is, is fantastic. It's just such an excellent, excellent book. Mm. Yeah. To tack on to that a little bit, the, I do really like his writing. I think Dan Simmons and Alistair Reynolds are kind of two of my favorite, you know, sci-fi writers. So he's definitely up there for me in terms of just like, I really enjoy his work. I don't, can't remember what I was reading before this recently, but whatever it was, once I picked up Hyperion, I was like, oh, breath of fucking fresh air. Like, finally, I'm interested in reading something. I think I came off of some cyberpunk novel, which was probably just fine, but I just wasn't quite in the mood for it. And just coming back to this, I just, it was just cl cleansing of the palate. And I really just enjoyed it. He does have a bit of a kitchen sink storytelling style where he, weaves a lot of threads together he does it well but like there tends to be a lot going on especially like in some of his other work like um ilium and olympus and stuff but but i agree it's it's really strong writing and a great and a great story you know i still haven't gotten into ilium and olympus even though i have the two audiobooks but you're right i think the strength there chad is really that he is so good at managing so many different pieces of action happening at the same time and he doesn't seem to leave anybody out or any part of it out, you know? So there, there's all these multiple story elements. And like you said, you know, Kitchen Sink, a lot of writers, I think if it was, you know, a book, TV, 
film, whatever, some something would get lost in the shuffle. Something would end up in the dusty corner with the, the spider webs, you know, but he doesn't do that. He seems to give all of it a lot of justice. And there's nothing that's just kind of hanging out there in the wild blue yonder during or at the end in, in terms of like a leftover piece that was never explained. So I think that's, you know, a huge strength of his. He does not skimp. <laughs> no, definitely not. But the threads all mean something, which, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it all it all counts for world building, you know? I mean, of course, uh, both of these books are centralized around the world of Hyperion, but he goes into quite a bit of detail about, you know, Passum and uh, Tau City Center and, you know, Maui Covenant and, you know, so, you know, as far as like what it's like and what the culture is like and, you know, what the world itself is like, its nature is like. And I, I think that's all quite even though you know you could probably tell the story without going into any detail about that it really counts towards fleshing things out and making it a world that feels lived in yeah what just came to mind when you said that ben was to my recollection there isn't a ton of description of some of the worlds like tau city center for example and so in a way like by not over-describing some of it, it leaves it up to the imagination enough where you don't end up with, like, a Mario world kind of thing where there's the lava planet and the ice planet and the, you know, there is a forest planet, but and there kind of is an ocean planet, but there isn't the common trope of every planet is one biome kind of thing, which I appreciated. It does it a little bit, but it does it, it restrains it just enough, and I feel like so many parts of this are borrowing some of the common sci-fi tropes, but is so restrained in how it is executed that it's completely like comes together well, I suppose. Sure. So it's it's a well fleshed out galaxy, but it's not overly described to the point of ridiculousness and 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 Mario worldishness. No, it's not ridiculous, but you know, you, you could uh you could say God's Grove is like a forest planet and that would be enough, you know, to to get the idea. You wouldn't have to, you know, talk about the world tree and, you know, whoa the view from there and you know what just he seems to take the time whenever he's on a world to sort of flesh it out a little bit for you you know to describe what people are seeing and i think that's that's good stuff yeah whereas like you wouldn't have to that being said there are you know <laughs> there are those tropey planets there is god's grove which is the forest planet there's you know maui covenant which is basically the ocean world <laughs> so <laughs> they exist but they're not like they're believable well yeah they're very believable. There's a, there's a couple of them too. I mean, there's there's multiples as well, right? So Maui Covenant and God's Grove both serve as ecological planets. Like that's where all the tree huggers went. But the cool thing is that Maui Covenant was destroyed and God's Grove is completely pristine. You know, so you've got the ocean world of Maui Covenant and then you've also got the ocean world of Mare Infinitus. You know, so there's some – I mean, I'm agreeing with what you guys are saying. There, there's no – bland blah blah in the world building you know when like when they went to the lava planet to see darth vader in rogue one i just died <laughs> it was so like oh he lives on a lava planet with a castle okay great yeah it was fucking bowser's castle for like, sure annoying like that yeah there's clearly a, a decent reason for the common sci-fi trope of planets being one ecology or one country is like we only know the earth you know like we we generally don't really have much of an imagination beyond either an earth or a barren mars or maybe an ocean planet so it's it's understandable but i kind of wish there was a bit more 
I don't know, imagination. And I, fe- I, you know, I do feel like we're all saying the same thing in the sense that like Simmons did a good job versus some of the other sci-fi universes out there that maybe didn't do such a great job of that kind of thing. True. And not to go on too much of a cul-de-sac, but I mean, you know, to sit down and try to think of even five or 10 worlds that exist inside of like a, a little human empire in the future that are all very, very different and unique is that's a pretty intense undertaking. So no, for sure, I want to say like, I'm, and this is me sort of like letting everybody off the hook, like, and echoing what you're saying, Chad, is that, you know, they're, they're doing the best they can without spending, you know, literal months trying to create planets for that are really background to the story, you know, in most cases. Yeah. So where to next? Why don't we talk about Severn? Yeah, okay. Sure. He's uh, very much the linchpin, as it were, of the story. He plays such a huge part, and he plays so many roles that I think it's definitely you know worth spending time on. I mean, the interesting thing about this book is that it's Hyperion is the setup for this story. You know, that takes place literally like a week later, not even. And you have all of the various activities and goings on of the pilgrims themselves as they're playing out their various parts of the story with the time tombs and the shrike. And then you have Severn injected into the story, seemingly really just as a somewhat of a narrator in the beginning, but he plays the interesting role of being a narrator and then also interacting in the story. And then his role becomes more and more integrated as the story goes. And then you've also got, or he has rather, his own story and his own role to play in the overall story. And he's also sort of one of the old characters from the old book and sort of not. So really interesting dynamic and a really interesting multifaceted character in Severn. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Kev, because him becoming more and more involved in the story really... I hadn't remembered that he ends up saving the day in the very, very climax of the the book with like getting Rachel from the Shrike, if I'm not mistaken. So he's like a pivotal, pivotal part of the essentially success of the entire Cantos, just that one act. And so it's, it's a really interesting role that he plays. Yeah, he's pivotal in a lot of ways. He figures out that the, uh, the AI core is, you know, living in the interstices of the, uh, Farcaster portals, as it were. Mm. And you're, you're really just adding, you know, especially that part, Chad, but both of those things that you both just said, like you're adding those to the heap, you know, things that he's doing and roles that he's playing in the story, which just, just makes it even cooler, you know? Yeah. I think because he's so seemingly kind of a whatever, not a, not necessarily a whatever character, but you know, when we meet him, it's just like, you know, he's just kind of lounging around and following Mayna Gladstone around and, you know, sort of doing some drawings and he gets kidnapped and, you know, it's pretty cushy the way he's existing, right? You know? He's just napping all fucking day. He's like a cat. Yeah, exactly. And he gets, you know, goes and has sex and then he gets tortured and <laughs> he gets rescued. Yeah, he's like a cat, you know? But then yeah, he's, you know, he's, so much <clears throat> happens. Go ahead, Ben. No, I was going to say it's just it's interesting to touch on the fact that he starts off as rather passive. He's just sort of reporting on the events around him. And by the end of the book, he's actually quite integral to the story itself. So hmm. 
it's it's neat how it unwinds, you know. And he even comments on it himself there when he meets the father in Passim. He's just like, it's so weird seeing you for real and not just dreaming about you. Like, even he's aware of how passive he's been. I, I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, and then it's also kind of cool how when he meets DeRay and Edouard, you know, they're kind of like, how do you know all this <laughs> stuff yeah. about me? That's kind of weird. Like, you just walked in the room, you know? It's almost like the reader is getting plopped into the story, like the never-ending story. They're like, wait, who are you? And you're like, I know everything. I've been reading this, you know? Right. Well, I Again, like that, Chad, another great sort of facet and role of Severn is that you are Severn. You're seeing almost everything in the story from Severn's point of view. So, or listener in the case of the audiobook, you know, which is great. You know, again, Dan Simmons, really great at, you know, descriptive detail and sucking you into the story that way. I mean, you really feel like they, you know, that Severn kind of grabs your hand and drags you along for the entire journey as you're you're reading the story maybe that's too lofty but no that's interesting i'm gonna take your loft and i'm gonna go even loftier with it this this might sound like whoa this might sound like one of those bullshit english teachers in school being like this book is actually about blah 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 and you're like nah it was a book about a dude in a boat man but (laughs) in in a way like putting you in severn's skin and plopping you into the story and then at the end essentially the ai are saying that severn is the attempt at capturing part of the perfect ai component of humanity it's kind of inviting the reader to be that empathy component of the ultimate intelligence but Mm. then ultimately taking it away from the reader so that the story can unfold further in a way if that makes sense wow that was awesome yes but i do sound like an english teacher making a bunch of shit up (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I could see you being an English teacher, sort of, somehow. Yeah, fuck that. But it, <laughs> it's like the biggest insult I've ever gotten. Sorry to all our English teacher listeners. Oh, come on, dude. What? I wasn't trying to insult you, man. No, I'm joking. You're my friend. We're pals. You're my friend. Um, well, Why don't you put her in charge? <laughs> <laughs> Look. Sorry, didn't mean to insult you. I I just really think that that was like the empathy empathy part in particular that you said. It it really does challenge the reader to sort of inhabit that. Not only inhabit that role, at the very least, it it, it challenges you to think about that and to to just think about empathy like that. That's how I've taken it as I've read this and listened to this story like so many times, right? It challenges you to think about empathy and then empathy's larger role in humanity. You know, it, it sort of – it does all of those things. Yeah. You know, agree, disagree? No. Yeah, I agree. I don't know what the storytelling term is for it, but like so often you're – as the viewer or reader, you're given more pieces of information than the characters. And so most of the time you're like, don't go in there, don't do that or whatever. Hmm. By putting you into Severn, it kind of it's doing both of the things at once. Like you know more than everybody else, but so does Severn. So it kind of like it's an interesting way to to force you to I don't know be empathetic and also in the at the same time you're like how the fuck could these people be be making such stupid mistakes? I guess you know. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but start to think uh, who it, who it would be that Bill Paxton would play in a movie of this book. Uh oh. <laughs> I never should have said that. Well, to be fair, though, I would prefer that he voiced Manetta, considering how bad the voice uh, in the audiobook was for Manetta. 
Oh. <laughs> I want I want five sausages and a slice of blueberry pie. It's a pancakes. Do you do you want to go back in time and fight the Shrike and have some blueberry pie? We don't have blueberry pie in the future. We only have Shrike. Shrike pie. Everything is made of Shrike. You you mentioned how much she was like the girl from Fabiana from Pulp Fiction in the last episode, but I hadn't heard it yet, and my god, dude. <laughs> it was all I could hear anytime she came on in the in the audiobook. It was so funny. It was all I could do not to crack up. Yes. I love when I achieve that level of success of mm. getting inside somebody's head. And I, I would like Fred, to s- Mon, I was thinking I want a pot. You want some pot? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want a pot. We gotta you gotta do it so the Bruce Willis character. Um, hey, you know what they say about Bruce Willis? What's that? Seagrams. Golden wine coolers. Seagrams. Golden wine coolers. It's wet and it's dry. Come on. Somebody give me a my, 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 my. I was waiting for you to get back onto what you were talking about and then interrupt you. You know, you can't. You can't start tossing out fishing lines of cul-de-sacs like that and think that I'm not going to go like into some sort All of the quantum way. world with it. <laughs> 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 no, I was going to say if Butch was the Shrike. Ba, 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 ba. You got <laughs> Okay, so the Shrike is Butch and then Moneta is Fabiana. Fabiana Moneta. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> Fabiana Moneta. <laughs> and so she's talking about, you know, going to the future. Would you like to go to the future and have some pie? Everything is made of Shrike in the future. We have no blueberries. It's all Shrike. And then there's the Shrike just coming back from aerobics class, you know. Um, you, you guys want to wanna fight now or do you want to wait and eat some pie first? Or I'm a little tired after my workout. A little bit tired after my workout. There's at least a thousand of me here, so I can kind of do whatever I want. I wish I heard the end of what you said, because it was probably really funny. (laughs) Oh, man. Can we call that death by Skype? Because I thought that was was death by Skype. I didn't hear it either. Yeah, that was was like interference from the void that binds. (laughs) Ooh, nice tie-in, man. The... That, like, intelligence comes on. He's like, you guys are wasting this Skype channel. I'm turning you off. <laughs> there will be no further misuse of this channel. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair First enough. and foremost, your stupid podcast is over. Maybe that should be Bill Paxton's role is just that one line of shutting down the Void Witch Vines. Well, I actually had somebody for the Bill Paxton voice. I was getting to that, and then you guys got on the Fabiana thing, and I kind of got sidetracked. Sorry. Okay, okay. All right, Bill Paxton. Well, hold on. I just I got to rate. I got to get this death jotted down because I feel like it was pretty complex. Death by sort Skype. Of death by Skype for everybody. Yep. Yeah, I think uh, we lost our home for a That's moment it. there. We were we were in our yeah we were in our Farcaster home in different rooms, and now we're fucking light years apart. So you're killing me. Who the fuck is Paxton? Yeah, man. <laughs> so Paxton, I so Severn goes with Lee Hunt to Hyperion, and he goes onto the three C command ship and talks to Nishida. Blah blah blah. Then he's like, "Oh, there's a drop ship going down. You want to get on?" <laughs> 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 I think you know where I'm going with this. So they get on the drop ship, 
And the dropship pilot is so Bill Paxton. Like he even says like straight away, he's like, oh, the pilot was chewing gum. And and then like, you know, there's a couple of lines that the pilot has. He's like, oh, yeah, is this your first time down? You know, I was like, oh, this guy is so Bill Paxton, dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love it. That is great. A Bill Paxton cameo. You know? Is this your first time down to the planet? But it would really be more of like a kind of – I was thinking kind of Hudson on the dropship and aliens, more of that kind of vibe too, you know? Yeah. I don't know if he was sleeping during that, you know? Or maybe that was Hicks. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, so – What about the actual dropship pilot from aliens though? The the chick with the uh, – That's true. She was pretty badass. With like the cop shades. and I think she's pretty much snapping gum and chewing gum while she's piloting in that, isn't she? Mm, totally. <laughs> totally, man. <laughs> I still say five by five in the pipe, five by five or in the pipe, <laughs> five by five all the time. Nobody ever gets it except my brother, who's as much of a nerd as I am. But yeah, Pax, I mean, here's the really sad thing is that I actually remember the lines from that section of the book, the audio book. <laughs> Just so you could bring it up. I love it. Is this your first time down to the planet? <laughs> I'm sorry. There are no windows on the drop ship. <laughs> Would you like some gum? <laughs> some future space gum. Would you like some futuristic space gum? <laughs> so that's what the void which binds is. That's right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I will be back to pick you up in 40 minutes. <laughs> I can't stop now. <sighs> Please uh, watch fuck. your step as you exit the windowless dropship. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I concur. That is the perfect role for him. I don't know if we're losing, uh, weaving any loose threads here, but... Um, I was, I really enjoyed uh, the audiobook. like, you know, the, the fact that there was like theme music at the beginning and the end and that, you know, mm. at the end, they're sort of like adding in some sound effects and stuff like that. And just, I couldn't help but think like, man, it would be awesome if the entire book was actually like a radio play, you know, mm. that'd be sick, actually. Not to take anything away from, uh, I can't remember the narrator's name because he, he did a good job. Victor Bavine. Victor Bavine, yes. Victor Fabiana Levine. <laughs> yeah. Not to take anything away from him, but man, it would have been awesome. It would be, man. That's a really interesting thought for like how to tackle something this difficult. You know, we we talked about how it might be hard to ever make this into a movie or series or even an animated series and radio drama might be the way there's drama series that are out and you could release it in like series form. So like you could do, you that's know, what I was going to say. Yeah. I don't know what the, the wiggle would be, but it would be interesting to do that as like a multi-part podcast, you know? Yeah. It'd be sick. Take the, take the story in chunks and, and release it, you know, once a week. If you did it in, yeah, I agree, Ben. If you did it in sort of episodic format, so if you did, say, hour-long episodes, you broke it up in hour-long episodes, I mean, you're still talking like 20, probably 20 episodes, maybe more than that, you know, because you're going to have... Per book. Yeah, I'm saying per book, exactly. Yeah. You're going to have just it's so many hours of material, man, you know? Yeah. 
But something like uh, Adventure Zone Season 1 was like closing in on 70 episodes, so like there's definitely already an appetite for those types of long-form content. Yeah. No doubt. And I think that like people would be super stoked to listen to it. Yeah, no doubt. But at any rate. Stand by. I'm, I'm sitting there editing Cobra, right? And I get to the Joe Fowler part, Kev's lifelong dream. You guys making fun of me. And what do I do? I start watching Joe Fowler videos again <laughs> for like 45 minutes. <laughs> I want to take this opportunity to turn this into a mid-roll. Joe Fowler videos again. Joe Fowler videos again. Joe Fowler. Joe Fowler. Joe Fowler. Hi, Joe Fowler here. Joe Fowler. Here. Joe Fowler. Joe here. Fowler. Joe Fowler. Here. Joe Fowler here. Folks, please share this podcast with a friend because if we can monetize this enough, Kev can quit his day job and just watch Joe Fowler videos full time with his his new career as a wannabe infomercial star. And that'll be great because it'll it'll curb him from doing it in the middle of the podcast while we're recording. He can have his own spin-off podcast. Which is just infomercials. I am looking for my son. You too can help people like Kevin by donating to our podcast now. You too could save podcasts. Even if it's not the Hyperion Cantos, you could do the same thing for any number of things. Ilium and Olympus, fucking Revelation Space, any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's um I haven't listened to a ton of books on tape, but um some of them seem to put a little more production value into it, you know? Mm. Um it's just like the the fact that they bothered like somebody bothered to compose like theme music. And they only used it like a little tiny bit at the beginning and a little tiny bit at the end. Like, yeah, you know, it's like, ah, oh, it's kind of a waste of time, you know. And there were just parts where, you know, as as great as uh, Victor Bevan did, you know, like the whole like there's like a long section where Severin's talking to Uman, and it's just like his interpretation of Uman is like not doing it for me at all <laughs> sure <laughs> you know like it's just mm. he's just kind of going low and speaking in a certain way but like imagine if they'd taken the time to like affect out his voice so it sounded like mm. vocodery or something yeah exactly uh and you know added some space to the whole thing you know like added some reverb or something to make it yeah, yeah. really feel like you're in uh, 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 uh the, the technocore so yeah it also reminded me of like old stage theater where there weren't any female performers and they were all men and they were dressed as women and men characters. And it's a similar kind of vibe. Like, right. It'd be awesome to have women playing the female characters for obvious reasons, but it would be a little bit more immersive too. So I definitely think it's a good idea. Yeah, definitely. You got any thoughts on the uh, audiobook, Kev? Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. I, I like how they add those, like, just kind of echo what Ben said. I love how they add the little bits of music. I think that Victor Bavine does a great job 
you know, even managing all the various different voices. It's a really, really challenging thing to do. I still think that Moneta sounds like Fabiana. Which makes for hilarious podcast content, so that's fine. Yes, yeah. Exactly, man. I think it's I think it's funny and I think it's great. Yeah. And I, again, you know, this is more of a commentary on audiobooks versus, you know, actually reading something, but it's such a great way to be able to digest a great medium when you don't have time to sit and put all of your attention into a book, yeah. you know, and read it. But I really feel like all of the books in the Hyperion series, because Victor Bavine does all of them, with the exception of the first one, they did pull in some other voice actors to do the various different parts because, you know, the, the Cantos tales or the Pilgrim's tales are pretty lengthy, you know. So I, I, I appreciate that they did that. I think it's fine that we don't get the same voices in the sequels, but yeah, it's okay. Whatever. Like a, like a minor just sort of observation really more than a gripe. Yeah, yeah. Whatever the reason, it's not a huge deal. It's not a deal breaker, maybe, is a better way to say it. No, I think it's not a deal breaker at all. I think, you know, just hiring multiple pieces of talent to do those voices in the second book, you know, they don't, they're not featured as prominently, you know, because as we already touched on, it's really Severn plays so much more of a huge part in terms of the narration of the story, you know, so I get why they did it. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess like my last thought on Severn was the cybrid nature of him, which I really enjoyed. I think we touched on the cybrid stuff in the previous conversation about Hyperion, but um, cybrids being connected to the core and not just in, in the body, kind of like the body is a limb as opposed to the whole, I really enjoyed. And so it was like even another facet of Severn that, uh, that you know, brought a huge amount of depth. Well, just... They're they're so interesting because they're fully human. They're literally the DNA recreation down to the atom of the original person or persona. And yet they have somehow, and I don't remember if they explain exactly how it works. I don't think they did. That whole connection to the core, like it's like the consciousness exists in the core and there's like an umbilical via I don't know what that goes straight to the body I mean I just imagine it's 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 funny because this was written in 1990 but it's like I it's like cloud computing and a device like that's kind of how I thought about it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very much like cloud computing yeah the amount of things just as a little quick side note how many things that Dan Simmons posits and creates and talks about in these books that have become a reality. Mm, fair enough. Even even if he wasn't like sort of addressing it directly, like what you just said, like that is completely and totally like cloud computing, you know, like the consciousness exists in the core and then, you know, the body is just live streaming in the real time world. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it's also interesting to me, or Ben, did you want to comment on that before I I'll, I'll just tag something really quick onto what you just said there. I remember uh, on my first read through of these books being like just kind of amazed by the amount of different kinds of uh, pivotal tech that were in the books. You know, um, not not every book is trying to like, m- m- you know, mingle uh, AI and, you know, vast, you know, space opera and, you know, kind of mythology and, you know, like there's, there's a lot of different angles. And I remember being like, holy shit, man, he packed a lot of stuff into this the first time I read. Mm. 
Yeah, for sure. It's it's a huge scope, you know, whereas something, uh, you know, per se, like, you know, Neuromancer by William Gibson is an amazing book, but its scope is pretty narrow. It's, you know, simply cyberpunk. There's no, you know, there's not a whole lot. I mean, I guess there's a lot that goes on, but I don't know. I don't know what I'm, where I'm getting at with that, but. Uh, no, no, I, I totally know what you're saying. I think you're talking in terms of like grandiose scale. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like th- this is this is like total space opera done in book form. You know, like. But it's also an it, it's also a tapestry as opposed to a variety of threads. Like the farcasters, for example, are super interesting and would be a super interesting piece of tech, like a lightsaber, but has a deeper meaning in the sense that the antagonist, the core, lives in the farcaster network and relies on it as its computing interface and so like mm. so often he takes something that's interesting and then makes it like a integral component of the story that without it wouldn't work so th- like i i kind of that's kind of why i took from what you were saying ben is that like he has these really cool pieces of tech but then they're like so integral that it's just like damn bro you're <laughs> you're fucking bringing it you know yeah it's well i guess it's just it's an ambitious amount of things to weave together you know it's a large it's a very wide scope of things and yeah he does he it's all integral it's all a part of the tapestry it's all weaved together very tightly mm. and it makes something like the dream sequences plausible which would just be like, eh, otherwise. But like, sure, it's perfectly plausible that a cybrid would be able to dream what was going on somewhere else, even though it seems really weird. It's really interesting because the, the concept of it, firstly, is very cool, that he can dream what the pilgrims are doing. And then when, I just love when Gladstone says to him, have you ever tried just closing your eyes and dreaming without going to sleep? And he's just kind of like, whoa, wait a second, man. Wait a second, you know, and then we're really off and running then because then he can just close his eyes and connect to essentially anywhere in real time via the metasphere or the megasphere. There's so many levels of sphere in this in this these books. You got the data sphere, the datum plane, the metasphere, the megasphere, you know, like <laughs> the sphere by Michael Crichton. I don't know how he's doing it, but I think I, I just thought that that was incredibly cool. Mm. The fact that he dreamt them in the first place and then when she said that, you know, it really blew my mind. I the first time I read it, I was like, "Whoa, dude." Mm. So Really, really interesting that he's able to do that. You know, and just, again, another really interesting and cool component of the Severn character, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I'd also like to just add in, you know, kind of going back to circling back to Severn for a second. Like, so before I said, you know, he's the exact DNA recreation of John Keats, but he has Severn's name because, you know, Keats was already used in the first story and then he died, I guess. He didn't really die, but he died. His certainly his his real-time, you know, flesh body died. And then he's recreated exactly as he was, but with the name Joseph Severn. But it's interesting that he is Keats, but he uses Severn's name. He has some of Severn's artistic ability and none of Keats's I guess you could say poetic or literary ability. And then at the same time as all that, he's his own person as he experiences events 
in the world web in the year that they're living. Like, I just find that all really, really interesting and cool. Like, and it makes the characters so multifaceted and so just interesting. Mm, certainly more interesting than bringing the original Keats from the first book back. Oh my God. Like a million times more interesting. And like, he even gets like pissed about it at a couple of points, you know? You got anything on Cyrus, Benny? Yeah, I've always liked the idea of the uh, embodied, um, larger artificial intelligence. Um, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this in the last Hyperion episode, but, you know, ship mines and E&M Banks's books, the culture, mm. often have, like, an embodied envoy that sort of greets people and goes to diplomatic meetings and such that, you know, basically contains the entirety of the AI, but is also connected to the ship and can be just human or can be any wild variety of anything you could imagine. Um, so that concept is definitely cool, but specifically the concept of like John Keats being sort of, you know, miraculously resurrected with full memories intact, including that of his death, like just for some reason on this particular read or listen, as it were, that concept like struck me. Like I thought like, wow, imagine if you like just woke up yeah, in the, in the distant future with, you know, all of your memories intact, including that of your death. And you were just, that would just be insane. Yeah. It's nuts. <laughs> the thought captivated me and, and yeah. Yeah. I like that, man. I hadn't, considered that in particular but in a similar vein i really like the idea of for lack of a better term like computers the ai being so fascinated with the idea of genius that they resurrect various geniuses in order to try and capture something that they feel like they don't have and the idea of like resurrecting a genius to come back you know is is even more kind of like i don't know in line with what you're saying as well, you know, like bringing like an Einstein or a whatever, you know, Keats or whatever back. And then this is like, so you were alive in 1700, but it's the year 5000 now. And <laughs> we're going to set you up in this weird fucking portal office with the CEO of the universe. It's <laughs> just like, okay. Yeah. What do you think about all that? Is that weird? Is that, is that kind of weird? But you know what I mean about the uh, the genius thing? Like, I, I just, I kind of think the... Yes, they certainly would not bring me back. No, fair, fair. <laughs> yeah, no, nor I. But I love the idea that, like, a group of infinite or close to infinitely intelligent AI would kind of have a bit of jealousy towards human the genius that takes place in humanity. Like, I don't know where I've... It's, it's a common theme, I find, I feel like, but... yeah. Sure. Like computers not being able to capture it and, and, and trying to cap like literally capture genius and, and embody it is is kind of funny and clever. Yeah, it's common in, in fiction anyways for, you know, super intelligent uh artificial intelligence to have like vast, vast power but somehow be lacking the creative spark that Yeah human beings have like it's like we have to imagine that they would have some shortcoming <laughs> in order to justify keeping us around yeah which similar to our conversation about forest planets you know being like you know how can you imagine something beyond the scope of what you know as a creator like how could you imagine a computer that's 
beyond the limitations that currently exist. Like even the smartest computers now don't have anything close to creativity, you know, like just ask Siri something and you can figure that out in about two fucking seconds. Right. But, uh, of course you would kind of extrapolate that into the mega intelligences. Like it makes sense to, I suppose it's almost like if you admit in your story that intelligences are ultimately creative, then like, what's the point of humanity at that stage? <laughs> you know, like there's no reason to have one. Yeah. Which is one thing I always sort of liked about, uh, not to keep like harping on the culture books, but hopefully we'll get to those at some point. Cause that's some of my favorite stuff. One thing I always liked about it was that it seemed like the AI didn't have any limitations. Really. They just happened to enjoy having people around, you know, like they right. liked having something other than themselves there to <laughs> like like bounce pets. ideas off of. And <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, really <laughs> kind of like their pets, but you know, they, they certainly let people do a lot mm. and they certainly let people be part of decision-making, you know, it wasn't like they were just uh, some kind of like, uh, you know, benign dictators. Yeah. And, and, you know, the benign dictator thing really kind of reminds me of, um, I forget the guy's name. What was the the douchebag hologram representative of the core in the political sphere here? Counselor Albedo. Albedo, which is a great name. I, I kind of – I enjoy how fleshed out all of the different AI factions were and the fact that there even were AI factions was quite cool as opposed to it just being some giant monolithic every AI agrees kind of thing. Yes. That is a really great segue into a very interesting part of this story because – Everything we've certainly seen recently, um, looking at you, Westworld, <laughs> it's one one AI superintelligence. Yep. You know, Rehoboam kind of doing everything. You know, and this was the intelligences were all their own separate entities, which I thought was very cool. Yeah. And that they, that they had opinions. Which makes you know? sense. So whether – well, I mean, it makes sense. It also adds a level of emotionality to the elements of the core and the beings of the core, you know, because if you have the stables, the ultimates and the volatiles, right? And the stables are saying, no, we want to keep everything the same. And the volatiles are saying, no, humanity has to end. It's like somewhere in there, in all of that mess, there's there's an emotion that's affecting how at least one of them is thinking. And I find that very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and they even go on at one point to say that even the three factions are a gross simplification of thousands and thousands of factions. So, like, I just really enjoyed that complexity. I must have glossed over that somewhere. It's. I think it's just like a one-liner stuck in an Uman conversation. You know, like, I don't, I don't know if they really dive into it. <laughs> you know how those Uman conversations you go? Get you. Hey, quats. 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 So many things were going around my head when I was listening to the two of you guys talk about AI and all that stuff before, but I'm not going to comment on that. We could. I've been watching a lot of... I'm sure there's plenty of future AI shows to dive in on this about. Yeah, I've really been wa- I've actually been reading and watching a lot about AI lately, a lot of interviews about that too, and um, it's an interesting topic, but I don't really think we need to necessarily go down that road. I like the way it all works I'll, I'll only comment in saying I like the way everything works together in the universe that Dan Simmons has created. So you have obviously AI, but then there's multiple AIs. They have their own personalities. Yeah. Clearly, they're their own entities, as I just said. And then 
they also are symbiotic with the human world. I mean, that's one of the huge reveals in the story, you know. They're they're not necessarily even symbiotic. They're parasitic, really. Yeah, parasitic, yeah. You know, and the humans, you know, still exist in their world and do all of the things that they do. To uh, to have a late-breaking Matrix death, like, the AI in this are much more humans <laughs> as batteries than they are humans as playthings in kind of a culture vibe where, you know, they're lay way more interested in uh, humans walking through Farcaster so they get the compute power than they are about, well, at least the main faction seems to be. So it's, it's, it's very much parasitic, like you were saying. I'll use that as a segue to just make a commentary on kind of humanity in this, in this world, this universe that he's created is that people are just still very much the same kind of shitbags that they are now, mm. except with more technology to let them be kind of more shitty. And I don't know. It sort of bums me out a little bit when I when I read this series, but in the scope of the Hyperion books themselves, like, you know, it's always kind of bummed me out how shitty everybody was still. Well, just like he predicted tech, I feel like this is a pretty – reasonable prediction of where we would end up if we don't change some stuff around agree that's that's just, that's what i'm driving at yeah mm. if we still were operating like that i don't see how we would have made it that far sure <laughs> you know what i'm saying exactly exactly one would think that you know we would have leveled up to some degree yeah but that doesn't make for an interesting story so or maybe it does. I think it does um, in some cases, but that's just not the way this story is. I think it does make for an interesting story, and I think some of the crazier Alistair Reynolds stuff deals with those types of societies. But I feel like in this particular case, it's kept so close to how we currently operate to act as a cautionary tale, very much like what Kev was kind of seeming to drive at. Sure. So I kind of am like, I love the kind of like, whatever the exact title, I don't remember, but like House of a Thousand Sons, crazy shit that Alistair Reynolds writes. But in this case, the fact that humanity hasn't leveled up and is essentially just playing with fancier fucking iPhones and farcastery bullshit acts as a major cautionary tale to like, hey, everyone, get your shit together. <laughs> you know, like I kind of like the everyone get your shit together arc of the of the Cantos. Mm. You know, also as Kev alluded to, the story is sort of about sort of about the leveling up of humanity. Yeah. So fair. you have to start from somewhere. Yeah. And starting with where we currently are is a very much more accessible jumping off point. You could make a strong case that, you know, it is mirroring what's what's happening now. Strange as that is, you know, I find that ironic. And we we've had other shows where we felt that the content was kind of mirroring what's happening now, even though it was written, you know, 30, whatever years ago. I kind of feel like that's certainly one of the driving forces of the story. Like the moral of empathy, like the fact that empathy is essentially raised up to the level of a deity in this literally with a Holy Trinity kind of allegory makes it pretty clear that, that the story is driving at, Empathy is way more important than than the greed of of what is shown as a silly capitalistic interconnected hegemonic society. So 
Mm. I think it's very much what they're driving at. Yep. <laughs> the whole story is literally about the importance of love. Ooh. I love when you do that, man. Like 100%. You're ex- exactly, absolutely right. But it's interesting. And I'm like the entire story of the four books is given away in reasonable detail in, in this book. There are moments when I think it's Severn is talking to Uman or whatever, and it's just like there's going to be a person, and they're going to come, and they're going to do this, that, and the other. And it like 100% lays out exactly what fucking happens in the next two books. But because it's your first time reading it, you have no idea what you're reading, and so therefore it's lost on you, you know? Right. I feel like – I feel like I had, you know, because of all that, I had an idea of what was going to happen. I just didn't know exactly how it was going to play out. Yeah. And it was still interesting to it was still interesting to go for the journey, you know, and there were there's lots of things that the, the hinting of them makes you uh, it like wets your it's like an appetizer, you know, like you're you're you get psyched. Or I got psyched on my first read through of these books that, you know, I, I kind of had a little like clues of things that I knew were going to be fleshed out for me, you know, even something like uh, the ousters, you know, and, and hearing about the ousters and being like, oh, wow, I, I know we're going to encounter them at some point. And of course, they end up becoming a larger part of the story, even in this book. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like there's lots of little things that are sort of hinted at that you don't necessarily get a, a good bite of immediately that end up that end up front and center on the page. So, yeah. You know, it's so cool about these stories, too. This is really just a little aside is that there's just so much information. There's so much going on that there's always something I will forget in, in each go through or, or just have missed altogether. You know, and I just love picking up new, interesting little things as I go through these these go throughs rather. Yeah, it kind of reminds me in a weird way of uh, The Wire, the television series, where I remember um, David Simon, one of the creators talking about The Wire as a cop show and saying that, like, to kind of somewhat quote him, he was saying, like, my show is about just like every other CSI show, but if it, instead of one episode you figure out what happens, you figure out what happens in this show over one season, and you don't figure out what happens because of some magical clue that falls from heaven. You figure out what happens because there's just shit tons of information that, like, flood you, and then you eventually figure out where you are as you kind of get more comfortable mm. in the universe. And it kind of really it kind of just jumped to mind when you said that, because I feel like these universes that Simmons creates are so like, there's so much going on that you, you can and do miss stuff, but it makes it so much more delightful to revisit, I guess. Yeah. And maybe some of the shittier works out there to beat by beat by beat, you know, it's just like a one, one sequence of notes going through a story as opposed to this, which is just like a whole bunch of stuff and you pick up what you pick up and you don't pick up what you don't pick up, you know, mm-hmm. random thought over. No, no, not random. I, you, you was, you were well attached to what I was saying. And I really, I, I've done the same thing. It just had me thinking about breaking bad and DS nine. Like I've watched those series multiple times and it's so great to revisit those and get into that world and pick up things that you forgot, you know, or never picked up the first time. You yeah. Know? So just, just echoing what you said. Mm. Just makes me want to go down to Quarks and play some Dabo. <laughs> Use the hollow sweets, throw down some, throw some strips of Latinum around. You know it, man. You know it. I do think what what comes to mind, I think, would be a great way to close it out is 
maybe spending 15 minutes talking about the crescendo of the story, I think it would be worth touching on how it all wraps up in terms of Gladstone pulling the pin on the Farcasters and Moneta being Rachel and kind of just some of the final moments would be interesting. I don't think we need to get sucked into a play-by-play, but I, I really kind of feel like the hegemony getting bamboozled repeatedly over and over and, and the military guys being like, oh, nah, we'll get them this time, and then like constantly getting their shit pushed in. You know, like <laughs> love it. Did you find the uh, Did you find the military guys getting their asses handed to them as entertaining as I did? Because I just got a kick out of it. I did too, because I, you know, specifically remember listening to them talking with such confidence about what they were certain they were certain of, and they were so completely wrong about it. And and one of my favorite characters in the sort of the military heads arc, you know, in the book was Commander William Agenta Lee, who was invited by Gladstone. And he was, you know, the one that only one that was really using his head. And, you know, they kind of shipped him to some backwater world. Then she was like, yeah, now let's just promote him up. I want him with me one twenty five eight. You know, I thought that was great. And I, I did enjoy that they kept getting their butts handed to them because they just really had no clue what was going on. You know, in the whole idea of the new Bushido and the way that the military was run seemed pretty foolish to me in general, you know, like coming from a a Japanese martial arts perspective, because I've studied Japanese martial arts, like the idea that you're going to get a battle in that way that you want it is just so absurd. Like, yeah. Combat and war just doesn't work that way, you know? I mean, if you're living in Japan, certainly feudal Japan, where everybody's following the same code, then yes, absolutely. But against the ousters, like, why would they do that? It's just so dumb. It's just poor. Not to mention that the Bushido Code was created after all of the wars in Japan as well. (laughs) Like, there's a bunch of dudes sitting around writing about what happened before. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. You know, and, and, you know, case in point, like the, the Glennon Height Rebellion, you know, like they didn't, there, there was no new Bushido, you know, sort of code of war during that. I mean, we get a full play-by-play of that when we listen to Kassad's story in the first book. So, mm. you know, I, I found that that interesting and comical, trying to add on to what you're saying, Chad. You know what I mean? Like, just yeah. ridiculous, you know? I, I love that they, they just keep being wrong, you know? But at the same time, there's... There's a lot of characters in there that are are worthy. Um, they're they're great characters, rather, and I, I do you do get to know them a little bit, and you do you know start to create an attachment for them. Like I I really I've always loved more Pergo in the in the story, and I love the more Pergo parts and the chewing on the cigar and all of that. And I like that he was pilot piloting the ship with the Death Wand device at the end as well. You know, so there's there's some redeeming qualities of the of the Force heads of state, as it were. But yeah, short answer. Yeah, it is very comical. Yeah, well, I mean, as fun as it is watching uh, these overconfident, you know, uh, military guys get their asses handed to them, it seems a little like they were so woefully underinformed, and I almost have a hard time believing that, like they would know so little about what's going on in their world. You know? Yeah. Like, we know why the wool is pulled over their eyes, but at the same time, 
one might think it's a little unbelievable that they would be so incompetent. Just a just a thought. I suppose if you're only relying on on bad data top to bottom, no matter how competent right. you are, you're going to get fucked. So, but if you were so, the only thing I can say to that Ben, because I agree with you, like, and I can see that for sure. The only thing I can say in the contrary is that if you had so had the wool pulled over your eyes so thoroughly by the core, right? And I mean, admittedly, only Gladstone herself and like Byron Lamia had really thought about the core being this sort of evil entity, right? And everybody else was just so used to them. They, they were just part of everyday life. I could totally see where they could make such a mistake like that because they would be relying on the core AIs and their predictive abilities and taking it as gospel no matter what they say. Hmm. And Byron Lamia was an example of a person – that that speaks out against the core like it implies that the core is probably weeding out millions of people killing off millions of of people that are catching on so they they kind of only allow those to uh to survive that are towing the line maybe right but but right. using another matrix reference um you if you were that plugged in you you wouldn't necessarily realize it you know what i mean maybe they yeah were, yeah pulling the wool over your eyes and like, you know, fudging the, the data vectors of the, the ouster swarms, you know, and then essentially building their own entire fleet to kind of get rid of their own enemy, which I sort of didn't really. See, I always got the, the, the feeling that the, they weren't changing the vectors of the swarms. I got the feeling that they sent swarms out hundreds of years early because they were planning that far ahead. Yeah, I guess to, to finish my thought, I, I suppose what you could say is the whole thing was sort of meant to showcase how overconfident and bloated, you know, the the military was and, you know, the fact that they basically have been unchallenged for so long, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's interesting. I like I like that it's seemingly vague enough where we all kind of have our own kind of headcanon stories that we've told ourselves about the justifications for i hadn't considered that they had been unchallenged for so long that they've gotten a bit complacent but that makes total sense and mixes in well with the idea of you know the core pruning out naysayers here and there probably by just disappearing them when they step through forecasters and they just don't come out the other end or something yeah it's it's wild and the fact that the core is really the cause for the bad data like it was kind of plausible enough to me that I never gave it a second thought. I agree. I mean, the big reveal, obviously, Chad, from Severn is that the far, the, the core exists in the Farcaster web, and they're using human Which brain. Which blew my fucking mind when I read it for the first time. I was, I was thinking the same thing, actually, when we were talking. We kind of hinted at it before. That absolutely blew me away. Like, I just did not see that coming in any way. I thought it was such a great... Plot device, plot point, whatever. And so much better than like random blah, blah, blah planet is where they have their machine, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's so much better than that. Right, right. Like like the Matrix, like the machine city, you know, exactly. whatever. Yeah. Like it was way better than that. It was like they exist. The whole time I was like probably something like a Death Star, but it's like, nope. You know what I mean though? Like it's just like all you know. So it's, <laughs> I do. It's just so like funny to even think that, man, you know. 
It's just like a placeholder in your brain for what it is. You're like, ah, I'm sure they'll tell me eventually. In the meantime, it's the Death Star. Right. You're meant to wonder about it, though, because I, d- I definitely did not see it coming when, yeah. when it happened. But it's genius. Oh, I didn't see it coming at all, yeah. So genius. I remember, you know, it's not often you have like an out loud, holy fuck kind of moment while you're reading a book, but that was definitely one. Yeah, for sure. Especially when they like make it clear that they live in the Farcaster portal net and use the synapses in all of the people going through it for their computing power. You're just like, God, that's so dark and so good. So good, man. Yeah, I love I love that that they reveal that it's in the Farcaster net and then I love that Gladstone has the cojones to to blow it all up. Like it's such a like huge moment for for her, you know, up until that point like we were saying before, they just keep getting played like a fiddle by the core. And then Gladstone just goes out on her own and just like, nah, and blows the whole thing up with uh, your buddy Morpungo or whatever. Morpungo? Yeah. <laughs> My buddy. <laughs> we were just having a glass of wine last night. He's a great guy. I think he probably drinks Lord Vaco on the bridge of his ship. Whilst chewing a cigar, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He dips his cigar in the Lord Vodka. <laughs> oh, dude. Wow. So it's extra sloppy. The whole Gladstone losing power, her political power, and the kind of like whatever Galactic Senate bullshit. Like there's, they're trying to strip her of her CEO-ness, but she still manages to pull it off and stuff and, and whatnot. I, I find I found that really, I don't know, maybe realistic is a word considering and like – awesome that she was just like you know what fuck it my political power is gone but i'm just gonna plow ahead and and blow all these fucking things up and just be like the hated person amongst the billions but it needs to happen absolutely man sacrificing yourself for the greater good like it was and then literally sacrificing herself yeah and then literally doing it and i really admired that in her and i i just thought it was fantastic that she did that you know like it takes a lot to do that it's it's a very somewhat of an ultimate selfless act when she declares war on the techno core with albedo like after everybody leaves like as this stuff is starting to ramp up and she's like you know you failed us like we're if you basically if you don't get your shit together the hegemony of man will be declaring war on the Technocore. And then Albedo is like, oh, that's like, you know, the fish declaring war on the water. And I love how she gives the analogy of like the EMV wouldn't start and my grandfather put six six slugs from a pulse rifle in it. And it's <laughs> a great, cool moment in the book, you know, of like just declaring war on the core. And it kind of, you know, gets one of those balls rolling that leads us into, you know, this this sort of stuff that happens later, you know. The literal breakdown of the hegemony, yeah. She's a great character in that she's she's not a reluctant leader, but she happens to be in charge in a time where some great sacrifices are gonna have to be made. And, you know, it's not just it's not just her sacrifice of, of her life, but really like it's it's sacrificing her place in history and how she'll be remembered. Mm. And just being a leader that has to do has to do what has to be done for the greater good, even if it means, you know, I mean, I couldn't imagine having to choose between the things that she would have to choose from, you know? Yeah. Essentially, essentially turning off the power, you know? Yeah. Instantly consigning a bunch of people to, to death by starvation or, you know. Death by isolation. Isolation. Yeah. A lot of things, man. I mean. Death by snoo snoo. Death by Snoo Snoo, yep. And and also, you know, one of the things that I dug kind of echoing somewhat of what you both said was that 
you know, she she could see where the whole thing was going and she knew she was going to lose power. She knew she was going to piss everybody off. And she's like, you know, I have to play it so that everybody kind of stays on my side just long enough that I can like take the whole thing down. And I love the way that she orchestrated that, you know, by getting the senators to get on board with it and, you know, all of that stuff that leads up to the Morpungo and his son blowing up, blowing the death wand device. <laughs> My buddy, Morpungo. Totally. So, you know, I just thought I like the way that those parts were written and I love what she did and how she did it. What about, what about the pilgrims? There's a couple of uh, things probably worth touching on there. It's sort of not surprising, and I love that Selenus just goes to the City of Poets to finish the cantos, and, you know, the strike comes by. And yeah. He's like, yeah, I really uh, really like your poem. I really like what you've done with it, but um, I, <laughs> I got to kill you now. Yeah, we're Sorry. in a bit of a rush. I got a aerobics class I got to get to. Look, look, you're just going to have to finish thing while you're hanging from the tree, okay? <laughs> I really, um, on Selenus, I really liked that the Shrike was his muse in the sense that like, it seems like so often muses are like attractive females that get kind of taken advantage of. And I like how his muse is just this giant fucking scalpel. That's going to totally fuck him up. I just really, or as we that. would say now, Chad, aerobicizing death machine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Agree. I, I like that too. That's a very different use of that and a cool element for sure. There's also um, – I'm just trying to think of the other pilgrims. Yeah. At, at this point, Gassad has just fulfilled his destiny and leading the you know army in the final battle in the future. Mm. He's, he's certainly revealed to be the warrior that the Lord of Pain promised, which is weird, and that he's buried inside – which one is it? The Crystal Monolith or the Obelisk yeah. or – Crystal Monolith. The Crystal Monolith, right. Definitely the crystal monolith. Yeah, yeah, definitely crystal. Crystal monolith. Definitely definitely crystal monolith. I saw it yeah. on Wapner. About $100. <laughs> yeah, the entry fee to get into to the crystal monolith is $100. About $100. Yeah. It definitely sparkles. Um, Kassad, yes. I mean, the most notable thing, obviously, that we that reveal is that Rachel is Moneta. Yeah, dude, that was you know, another mind blowing moment for me, for sure. Absolutely mind blowing to me. I, I just couldn't, you know, wrap my head around that. I was like, wow. Uh, and, and the funny thing is, is that I remember when I read these books originally, he, I don't believe that either Rise and Endymion hadn't come out yet, or I didn't know that there were two sequels. So I thought that the the whole story ended at Fall of Hyperion, and I don't, I didn't remember the whole Rachel was Moneta thing. And then I figured it out later on, I think in rise of Endymion. And I yeah, they like, talk about it again. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty, pretty blown away when I read it then, but yeah, I just absolutely mind blowing. And, you know, reading, going through it this time, I, as much as I complained about the scholar's story being kind of boring, but really only boring in the sense of I've read these books or listened to them a thousand times. He's, I, I really felt for him, man. My, my, my empathy for, Saul was mm, great totally. in, in this part of the story. You know, just this poor guy having to raise his daughter twice and then just ultimately to give her up. You know, I mean, it was great that he was allowed the message from Rachel when she was, what, I think 10 years old again or a 10-year-old Rachel came through mm. to, to give her the mess, to give him the message. But my God, such such loss. 
you know, in your, in your life and such sacrifice, you know, it was, my heart really went out to him. And I've raised one kid to two years old and I like <laughs> having to raise the same kid three fucking times. Like, holy shit, man. <laughs> like The poor bastard. Hmm. Insane, man. Um, can one of you guys remember, clarify, did Saul go into the future to raise her again? The third time. Yeah, yes. he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is just like, I'm like obviously anyone would do that. Like, like I, I get it, but my God, dude, it's like imagine the third time. Like the kids too. Like I want to do this. Like fuck, man. How many times am I gonna have to put up with this phase of your goddamn right, life? Right, right, know? right. Totally, dude. Yeah, right. Totally. Got to think he was probably his temper was a little quicker to be unleashed on the, yeah, on the totally. third go around. Just like backhands her in the future. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's like in his 70s as he's going through round three, you know, poor guy. Like, I, I mean, the other thing, too, like, I got to say, after all of that, it's like, could they not have just taken her straight away from the beginning of her original life and then taken her to the future and done that? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, whatever. I don't probably a stupid idea to go down that road. But yeah, I think, you know, I was very satisfied with how Saul's arc got resolved. Yeah. Like you said, you feel a lot of empathy for him. And I, I think it's like pretty satisfying the way they pulled everything together and how it was all kind of inter- intertwined with with him and Rachel and with uh, Moneta and Kassad. And I like that he kind of finally got a resolve to, you know, he was like writing books about like how, uh, you know, God asking Abraham to, was it Abraham? Yes. Sacrifice his child and how he sort of comes to the realization that Abraham was testing God. Yeah, yeah, that was fascinating. Yes, that it was the other way around that that he was making sure that God was benevolent. God was worthy of his worship as opposed to him being worthy of God. Right. right. I yeah, love I I, that. Was all interesting. Well, it was also fascinating that the, the sort of Godhead Godheads in this these books are interactive. Yeah, like, for real in many ways, and something that we haven't experienced in actuality here as humans on this planet you know so i I really like that concept too Mm. but agree ben wholeheartedly agree i like the way his story wrapped up and you know all that stuff and all that stuff and all that sorry kind of of (laughs) all that jazz Uh. um no i agree i think the whole time I was so drawn into the story that you're just like terrified on behalf of Saul with the kid aging backwards. You're like, you're like, what the hell's going to happen when the kid hit zero? And the fact that he once again weaves Rachel into a major component of the story masterfully, like the fact that she's Moneta and not just saved and then goes on to have a normal life is just fantastic. She doesn't, she doesn't go on to become like a bartender in the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where everybody knows your name. <laughs> yeah, man. Slinging drinks at the end of the world, you know, whatever. Totally. Uh, hey, Mr. Weintraub. <laughs> Mr. Salinas. Hey. You know, like, whatever. Anyway, I died. We don't need to get into it in great detail, but uh, Dure and Hoyt, Early in the book, having, um, what is it, Hoyt get killed by the Shrike and Dure comes to life again. That was cool to see the Cruciform in action and 
Yeah. Quite a fascinating sequence. I didn't see that one coming at all. Oh, I didn't either. I, I just, I love that DeRay came back and then, you know, we get to sit in the, com- you know, we basically get to sit in for a lot of the conversation with Edward and then Severn shows up and like, I, you know, again, the idea of seeing everything from Severn's point of view and being privy to all that was just fantastic. Mm, and like Christianity is like a, a fallen order with like only a couple hundred thousand people and he gets elected Pope and stuff like there's just so much cool little nuance there. Absolutely. What else? We got Lamia who comes back to life in the core with Johnny. Like we covered a lot of the AI stuff, so it's probably not like critical to dive into great detail there, but it is revealed that she's pregnant with the one who teaches, which is quite cool. Mm -hmm. Correct. And then she eventually goes into the future, right? No, I can't remember how that works. Nope. No, she doesn't. Nope. She doesn't. Um, she does save Salinas. Yeah. Which is uh kind which of is kinda of random. That's one of my only like kind of gripes with the story is the random powers. No. That was be it was great. No, no. I'm I'm cool with her saving him. I'm just not cool with how she saved him. With being able to float and kill the Shrike and stuff because she has powers. Like that was kind of weird. Yeah, it was a little that entire sequence was a little vague with the the Shrike turning to crystal and Yeah. You know, shattering and, and it having a black fluttering heart like a moth or something. It was like, well, when it smashed, what happened to that? And what was that? And <laughs> there were definitely some loose ends there. But the fact that she not a deal breaker. No, not a not a deal breaker. It was fine. And uh, the fact that I, I liked the fact that she saved Salinas. Yeah, me too. Me, yeah, me too. Um, it, it, Silenus. It, Silenus. <laughs> Whatever. Sorry. It brought a little. Uh, are you done? I am finished. Sorry. <laughs> I just think it was, it was satisfying to tie those two together like that. Yeah. The kind of shit talky hatred. <laughs> yeah. They seemingly, she was always like threatening to kill him. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so many times. It's like, it's almost like the ultimate Riggs and Murtaugh kind of shithead comes in and is forced to be your sidekick and you eventually like him kind of thing. Oh my God. There we go. Lamia and Silenus. Next on Lamia and Silenus. Martin Silenus. I'm getting too old for this shit. There you go. <laughs> I need another drink. Hey, Lamia, you really like my poetry? <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think of the console kind of being a giant nothing burger? Like at the end, he realizes he's a nothing burger because he got played by everybody. It was kind of interesting. Perfect, perfect ending. Yeah, perfect ending for the console. You know, and again, great writing by Dan because, you know, he's he's built up as being the ultimate double agent, the ultimate betrayer. And then they're like, yeah, no, your punishment is to live and to try to be happy and play the piano and be a, be a happy person. We want you to be a happy person. And he's like, no, I was supposed to die. And it's good that I, I like that. It's a fitting end for him. You know, he's still one of my favorite characters. Yeah. Mm. If, I, if I had that ship and all of its goodies, I might get over it. You know, fair enough. <laughs> Which is a very subtle, uh, small cul-de-sac. The fact that ships were um, the fact that the ships were like symbols of wealth. I really like that because everyone just far casts around. So there's like barely any fucking, you know, pleasure cruise ships at all. 
That was great. Right. Rambly called a sec over. Who's left of the pilgrims? Who indeed? Uh, let's see. Silenus, Lamia. We talked about that. And Fedmon. Consul. Hetmastine, whatever. I, I was never, you know what? I, if I have one gripe, it's that I was never satisfied with the fucking Hetmastine story. Yeah, that's And I fair. wish we got to know more and we never got to find out. And that always sort of irked me a little bit. And I feel like if we got to know more about Mastine when he was alive, we would have got to know more about Templars, which I definitely wanted to know more about. And, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of I'm just pissing into the wind here, man. But, yeah. You're a bit salty on that. I like it. I am salty about it because I always wanted to know more about that particular story. I like that we get to revisit him in the valley and he reveals a little bit more. But and, and I guess part of the reason I'm just pissed is because the writing's good and, you know, you always leave your readers wanting more. And I wanted more and I didn't get it. So wow, wow, wow. Agree. Yeah, I mean it- – it was a perfectly serviceable plot line for him, but it just wasn't very elaborate. You know, it was like, oh, that that's what it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you find out, you know, that, that, uh, you know, he was supposed to pilot the, the tree of pain or whatever and decided not to. And then he was like in cahoots that the, he was in cahoots with the, uh, with the Shrike church. Very interesting. Yes. Y- you know, it's, it's like, it's perfectly fine. It's just not extremely satisfying. Yeah. True. I, I did enjoy when, like, DeRay goes to meet with, like, the head of the Templars and the head of the Shrike Church. That was kind of an interesting, like, you know, the Titans of Religion Showdown! Sunday, Sunday, Sunday! <laughs> yeah. And the Shrike Church dude was perfectly written as the biggest douchey religious dickhead. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you know, like, fat and, you know, from just being super indulgent and like, you know, just the description. And I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I think, you know what I yep. mean? Like I'm picturing like the, 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 uh, <laughs> what the fuck was his name? I can't remember now. The, the, the handlebar mustache dude from over the top. Oh, uh, Bull Hurley. <laughs> Bull, I'm picturing like Bull Hurley in like a, in like a robe, you know, <laughs> dude, I'm just trying to, trying to, do like a little mashup. I'm trying to do a little mashup in my mind here. There's like a bishop or like a cardinal or something in the preacher comics who's like exactly like this. Just like this huge fat fuck rings on his fat sausage finger. Where's the <laughs> where's the roby bullshit? Just like popping all of the buttons out of his fat fuck shirt. Like, oh my god, it's so good. <laughs> That's exactly what I was picturing this guy. Talk about salty dude, Jesus. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that was a interesting little showdown there. That essentially wraps the story, and my kind of closing thought is that I enjoy how much of a clean break it is, in the sense that, like, there isn't any huge cliffhanger necessarily, and there isn't any, like, huge thread. And so when you start the third book, it, it starts fresh, and, and I like that it's a clean break. Yeah, you could stop there, and it would be fine. You really could. Yeah. And you said a minute ago that you did, Kev. You thought it was over. Yeah, it was one of the only times an epilogue in a book I thought was favorable to the story. It wasn't just like some, you know, exposition at the end to try and make people feel better or something. You know? <laughs> I thought it was it was good. Yeah. 
Or the guy was approaching his deadline and smashes the last third of the book into the epilogue to meet his fucking publishing deadline. Right. Okay, so you want to do the the NDR without the various components of the NDR? Without the N and the R, yeah. <laughs> Just the D for me, thanks. Shit. Ooh. So the deaths, of which there were quite a few this week. We had death by Skype slash death by Void Witch Binds. Which was awesome. In which we none of us could hear what the hell the other one was saying, and it just turned into a giant mess. So that would be a group death, murder death kill. <laughs> I had Star Wars death. Chad had Matrix death. I also had that terrible Cheers reference that went nowhere. That wasn't a death. I like that. Oh, you like that? Yeah. All right. Okay. We can strike it from the record. So algorithm, what are we doing for next week? Next week, we're talking about double impact. Nice. Van Damage, finally. So there you have it, folks. Um, I just want to say thank you for joining us for the second part of our book club series. I really enjoyed this. We all love these Dan Simmons novels, and we hope that you enjoyed either reading them or listening to the audiobook as well. And please join us for part three, which would be Endymion or Endymion, which we will keep you apprised of when we're going to announce that. Yeah, it's sometime in uh, late October, early November. So we're, we're we're shooting for around four to five weeks between these, giving people plenty of time to to read and tons of time for listening. So, so there you have it. Stay tuned for that, and thanks for joining us. And we'll see you on another time. And that's going to wrap up this week's episode, folks. You can find the show notes for this episode in your podcast app of choice, as always, or at our website, bbd.fm forward slash episodes forward slash 74. You can contact us and ask us questions or make show requests on our Twitter hashtag AskBBD. You can also join us in the conversation on Instagram, which is where we spend most of our time talking to other listeners like yourselves. So please come join in the conversation. We post regularly. We conversate all the time. That's at EBD Podcast on Instagram. And that is also the handle we use on most of our social media. So you can follow us anywhere you choose. We also want to thank everybody so much for tuning into the show. And if you'd like to help us out, you can rate us and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Overcast, Overwatch, Fortnite, wherever you get your podcast muffins. <laughs> Please leave us a review. It's super helpful. Also, telling somebody to check out the show is incredibly powerful and incredibly important. Power. That's right. Power, Jar Ego. Like that guy in Ice Pirate said, Power to the people! Yeah, power to the people, man! <laughs> power to the people. Anyway, thanks for joining us, folks, and we'll see you next time. I am returning to the ship to get more futuristic space gum. I will return in 40 minutes. <laughs> I can't get off that. I love that. Uh. I am going back up to pick up more gum. I will be back to get you in 40 minutes. <laughs>